0: Welcome to Give & Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give & Take. People may be leaving organized religion, but the marketplace and replacement religion is booming. Those are the words of David Zoll, my guest today. He's the founder and editor of the Popular Mockingbird website and co-host of the Mockingcast podcast. He explores popular varieties of religions that aren't called religious in his new book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion. And what to do about it. He argues that religious observance hasn't faded away so much as migrated. We're seldom not in church, he says. The yearnings for hope, connection, and meaning that religion addresses don't go away. Instead, everyday pursuits like work, exercise, and romance become the path to salvation. He coined the term seculosity as a catch all for religiosity that's directed at earthly rather than heavenly objects. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you David Zoll. David, welcome to the podcast. It sounds strange to say that because you are the Animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird <laughs> Ministry It gave me my start in some ways in professional podcasting in many ways. So welcome to the podcast. But uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, that's usually it's it's my usual greeting, but it doesn't quite work here. Oh
1: well, it's I'm so happy to be here, and I was hoping, I was hoping to hear that phrase, "Animating force of the zeitgeist." You know, it doesn't quite work when I apply it to myself.
0: Well, yeah, it's a self-reference. It doesn't have the
1: same. It doesn't have quite the same, uh, you know, ring to it.
0: Yeah, it sounds kind of. Uh I guess arrogant, egotistical.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you'd pick one. It's like the royal we. Indeed. So um yeah, I I'm I'm thrilled to be here, man. I, I, I'm so happy to see your smiling face. People people don't know that we can see each other. Exactly. Or maybe they do.
0: Exactly. So you've written a tremendous book, Seculosity, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It, which I want to dive into in just a minute. But I want to ask you, because you're one of the best critics of music I know, and for all of our listeners that are under appreciative of Guns N' Roses. If you had 30 seconds or maybe even a minute and a half to pitch why people should pay attention to Guns N' Roses as a legitimate contributor to music, what would you say?
1: say two things i'd say a, a number of things I could, I could speak forever, but uh, Axl Rose has about fifteen different voices he uses. How many vocalists have that kind of range even even i mean he, he has his low voice he has his his speaking voice he has his sort of crazy angry voice he has his sort of melodic croony voice it's incredible he is he is a force of nature then there's the guitar interplay between Izzy stradlin and uh, and slash but even even if even when you take Izzy out of it it's this kind of like alchemy almost but even if you take Izzy out of it Slash's guitar solos simply uh kind of cannot be beat and when you get this sort of epic strange uh songwriting into it oh the other thing is they have the best intros in all of rock and roll they oh, almost every one of their great songs has like a minute long sort of building intro that kind of gets you extremely pumped up even before one word has come out of Axel's mouth maybe you hear a screech or something like that so that's very short they're also extremely literate um where Axel is a very kind of a neurotic conflicted um, personality and that comes across in his lyrics so I'm glad you asked the question because it's a very important one
0: do you do you think rock and roll is dead, like in the sense, like that? If you watch like The Voice or American Idol, like most people do, like pop or or country or R and B, like there aren't many. Like, I mean, I guess there's the Black Keys, but I mean, do you, is is rock and roll dead? I mean, is it?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, every time people say it's dead, it's not really dead. It's definitely going through a um a down period right now. I think that it's impossible to be a rock band like guns and roses were slash are that kind of not uh you can't be a rock star today without sort of taking on a rock star pose and like you were almost pretending to be what these people in the 70s you grew up with or the 80s or the 90s even and um there's an there's not it's much harder to produce a kind of monocultural event today i think and um but so, if you're doing like Greta Van Fleet, you know, that's a big sort of rock band right now, they sound exactly like Led Zeppelin and they're sort of all of their poses. It's very self conscious. It's there's none of that, um, not that there wasn't self consciousness before, but um, you kind of can't take seriously the idea of a sort of a balls to the wall rock and roll band in the way that um, gave it the power and mythology of those great bands that I, I don't think will have that again i think the you know three chords and the truth i think that's probably fairly uh lasting i don't think that's going to go anywhere but
0: i mean it's interesting you say monocultural event like with you know the elvis or people like that yeah i think you're right like big bands the beatles uh maybe prince is the last i mean even prince didn't have as big a footprint as maybe some of the but that was a big monoculture stuff so do we, maybe lady gaga i mean do we have
1: I, I, Adele, Adele, I think is the closest we've come to in the last few years. Like, but um, remember that Saturday Night Live skit, Scott, where like they're all at Thanksgiving and it's like black and white, and you know, young and old, and Republican and Democrat, and like they're all arguing about something or other, and then Hello comes on yeah, and, and everyone start singing. starts singing it, and that sort of thing is harder to do when everyone is kind of in their own corner of their specific interest um but you know i i could be wrong things the lots, so much has shifted in the way we listen to music um not the music itself per se but the way we listen to music has shifted so much so it could shift again in in a way that is is sort of more uh mass produced but you know when you read that like i don't know uh so-and-so, YouTube put out an album and it sold 10 million copies, you know. People who sell 500,000 copies today, that's like the huge hit. But they were, like, the Eagles were selling, you know, 10 million records. And I don't, I think those days are kind of gone in a way that is, there. there's just so much more to choose from and it's so easy to get. And you lose a lot of that um, taste as a defining Characteristic of of people's lives is it's shifted into other things, but I don't think musical taste is quite as big a deal as it once was, at least when I was growing up and it was kind of harder fought and everyone was thinking about selling out versus not selling out. It was very moralistic, but it was kind of exciting in that way.
0: Um, Well, the law, okay, great segue to your book because the law is always exciting, right? It always, uh, so basically, I, I the the premise of your book is that we talk about that we're in the secular city or that we're in a kind of post-religious age a lot I mean and you're saying that whether or not this is true and the sociologists will debate it but even among the least religious explicitly like like blue state urban metro areas where you're in Charlottesville you can see the 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 zeal of religion—it's just mm-hmm. not in churches. It's in uh, uh, pursuit of romance, or or keto diets, or careerism, or these sorts of things, right? Or techno, or, or get, figuring out—you know—being a techno literati. Like these things, all become religious pursuits in their own way. Yeah, I, I, I,
1: exactly. I mean, I what the it was kind of born out of a sense of both trying to figure out what. Um, the Western world, at least that I was living in was was doing like uh, spiritually what, what was what was going on uh, in terms of how we were filling that void if we weren 't engaged in church or any kind of uh, worship of God or something like that, um, but also to be a person who is religious and goes to church and works at a church and writes about Christian stuff um, to be observing uh, to be inside these other Cultures, the culture of exercise, and the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, you know the, the way that the political uh, culture was working out, and all these things, and to say like, oh my gosh, this is this is like what I've this feels a lot like what I've been writing about and what I ex- have experienced in like the more um, zealous forms, the more fanatical forms of religion, and especially in terms of the law. In terms of the way that the pressure to um, be enough, um, you know, be righteous, if you will, the way that that was working out. I, I seemed like a lot of the, the anxiety of the devout, um, I was seeing it in places that it wasn't supposed to be, you know? And uh, it's, I think it's fundamentally interesting. I don't know if it's the exact same thing. That's why I tried to coin this term "seculosity," because I, I think people don't really like being told they're religious when they, really, when they really feel like they're not. But certainly we can learn something no matter where you come from, or where you're, uh, whatever, however you identify yourself. Uh, we can learn something from like kind of the pitfalls of what it looks like to be in a really oppressive um, situation where people are policing each other, where there are heretics, where people are cast out, where everyone is depending on, uh, you know, some sort of performance for their meaning, value, in fact, their salvation. I don't know, all these things looked, it looked to me to be almost like self-evident. So, uh, but also super interesting. And I, and I only wrote about the stuff that I was a kind of a co-conspirator in and a co-belligerent. Like I'm a, I'm a co-religionist of anything I write about. I am definitely a worshiper, uh,
0: in the church of, um, food, for example. And and what do you like to, what, what, so you, do you have a refined palate? I mean, I feel like we've eaten together. I mean, I mean, I, I've never seen that in you. That's interesting. We know each other. I, I didn't know that. Um,
1: yeah, I mean food is my is my medication of choice, I think. Like I'm not I'm not a person that drinks a lot, um or exercises a ton, you know. For me it's I would very not much,
0: know that looking at you. I would think you're in the gym all the time. You're an Adonis.
1: <laughs> well, tell that to my wife. The the um I would say that food for me, like I'm not as sucked in by the uh the immortality drive that people have around food, you know, the purity stuff. The the extreme uh um attention to purity when it comes to like how your food is sourced and what you're taking in your body. That to me feels extremely religious. I mean it's you know sort of one oh one type stuff. Uh but I'm more in terms of like my emotional health and uh the ways that I may try to make myself feel better and make myself feel loved. Food is one of those um avenue outlets for me for sure. When you need love, what do you eat? Like cheesesteak? uh, no, I'd say I like pepperoni pizza oh, yes. for that, and I mean extra, extra pepperoni. And then I really like um, Ben and Jerry's mint chocolate cookie ice cream. I could, I could just sort of eat. I could just swim in that stuff. Should there be,
0: so should there be fruit or vegetables on pizza?
1: Yes, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a purist there. I think I, I, pizza. I'm not sure you call it pizza at some point. You know, but like when I was living in uh, New Haven, uh, Connecticut, you know, we would always have they'd always have clams and bacon and and spinach and things on pizza, and I was like, ah, that looks gross. And then I tried it. I was like, uh, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. I was, I was, I was once blind, but now I see. And I, I, I do like a kind of a, I like those, uh, you know, buffalo sauce with uh, pineapple kind of things. Any, 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 any way you can get bring those tastes together.
0: Now you're somebody that was raised in the church, which is interesting because you are a great interpreter of religion for people that are not religious. I mean, you're not, I mean, Mockingbird, the organization you run, uh, I mean, it's a Christian organization, but you, you interview people for magazines and have contributors and people write about stuff that's, that's very outside the church and, 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 a lot of you have at the at the annual conferences, you have people speak that are not religious. And I mean, I think a lot of people would think that you were raised outside the church, but you have an interesting story because you're a person that seems to have a sympathy for the outsider. And you were, yeah, you were raised as a religious insider. I mean, that's I, I, that doesn't seem to me to be a story that's all that common. That's that's a that's a really perceptive way of putting it. I th- I've been thinking about this a
1: lot recently, in fact, because a lot of the, you're reading a lot right now about purity culture and um, deconstruction. I find a lot that, that sort of idea. And it's all coming from people who were raised in really devout and oppressively devout, in a lot of ways, uh, households, Christian households in the 80s and 90s and i was raised basically during that same period but i was not raised within that culture at all even though we went to church i was raised in the episcopal church which you know for better or worse it we we weren't um i occasionally went to youth group but i didn't really um have
0: that experience what were you like at youth group i would love to see you at youth group i mean what like were you the <laughs> kid in the were you the kid in the back that was kind of like like snickering and making c- like critical comments like
1: Uh, I mean, all I remember about youth group was doing a couple lock-ins and we like would watch, you know, Fantasia or something like that and eat pizza and run around. I didn't have, again, I never had an experience of church growing up where it was like a bunch of, um, you know, like, uh, super uptight people. I just, my, my, my father, the way he operates was very much, it was very psychological. It was very pastoral. It was very grace-oriented uh, form of Christianity, very Jesus-oriented. But I never had, uh, and, and Scott, we moved to Europe when I was in seventh grade. So all of the middle school stuff, once it gets, once youth group would have gotten into the kind of talking a lot about sex and drinking, I was living in Europe where those things aren't, or drinking certainly is is just completely differently conceived, and uh, certainly not tied to religion in any way. And then I went to a boarding school, and so I wasn't at home during those years. And so I, I kind of sidestepped a lot of that, um, and I think it was a really, uh, you know, God's provision or something. Because yeah, the schools that I went to, um, almost by circumstance rather than by choice, I mean, Completely by circumstance, rather than my choice. Um, they were not Christian schools, you know. I, I was I was with almost all Jewish kids, basically, and a few sort of you know uh, lapsed Protestant types. I mean, it was not. Um... When
0: you got sent to boarding school, I mean, what is that like? Because I think, how old were you?
1: I was fifteen.
0: Is it like can you not wait to get out of the house? Or are you like also like why don't they want me out of the house? I mean, did your other brothers go to boarding school? I mean, you, know, you have older two brothers. Brother did.
1: Yeah, the reason we went to boarding school was not because there was well my education was important to my folks, um but mainly because we were moving around so much and I didn't want to go to I, I basically did not want to go to three high schools in four years. That sounded worse to me than going and living in uh, at a, on a, in a small town in Connecticut. And uh so yeah, I you know I was I was sad to leave my brothers especially I mean to leave my parents and my brothers. Um but it had been kind of a tumultuous few years, and um, it, it, it kind of worked out for the best. I mean, I, went to, I ended up going to a boarding school that was very, very progressive, at least when we, we were in the height of that early 90s uh, PC thing that kind of subsided, you know, that people were saying we're kind of experiencing a revitalization of it, but... Um, so it was very evangelistic, very proselytizing in its ideology, and so therefore, when I would come across these uh, Christians who would who would who who were rebelling against their their upbringing and saying, "Oh, you know, these we, we can't proselytize against anyone else." Like, well, what are you talking about? You know, have you're just you, you've never you've clearly never been exposed to proselytizing on the other side because it is very aggressive as well. It just depends what you're proselytizing for. So, um. Anyway, I I look back on it, and you know, so it's like kind of the reasons I don't want to send my kids to Christian schools because their form, their rebellions, their adolescent rebellions, going to take is going to is going to get tied up with God, and mine didn't. It got tied up with sort of you know hyper diversity stuff, and uh, not that I not that I was like a teenage reactionary. It was more that I just I just reacted by getting completely into music and culture, and tuning out almost all ideological voices that I that were sort of telling me to
0: think the way they wanted me to. In the book, you talk about one of the things that we worship the altar of, if we're not at church, and even in the church, we still worship the altar of it, is romance. And you talk about like meeting your wife and you're, you know, you both, you're kind of, you you have this kind of, Even if you don't think, like, even if you were raised in a pretty psychologically healthy home like you were, you still, it sounds like you banked on a lot. You put a lot in the bank there meeting her. Look, we're going to have this great Christian marriage. We're going to have, you know, she comes from Christian stock of a different kind. She'll kind of, you know, make up for my deficits that I didn't have and everything. And then, and, and you talk about how, like. You have this great phrase in the book that you, you don't fall into love, you fail into love. And, and, and that sounds like that's your story with, with your wife.
1: Yeah, definitely. Kate and I, um, I mean, we do have similar backgrounds in some ways, but it, uh, yeah, I, I just think yeah, no matter what kind of background you have, love is what really blossoms once you're sort of illusions about each other um. Die, you know. Once those are burst, and the person sticks around. Once, um, you know, because you watch, you know, just like teenagers and anyone who falls in love, you get kind of swept up in the, in um, the projections that you have about the other person and your kind of idea of the other person. And then once they become a real person, uh, you either stick around and you kind of find, uh, you are able to, um, the love is cemented in the moments of vulnerability and failure and you know repeat offense or it's just ended. And so um yeah, I found like the first 3 years of our marriage I talk about in there were definitely um coming to grips with who each other really were and uh what that looked like and that our bond our our true marriage bond and and the only word for it is love was um that's where that you know arrived not on the day that we said uh, you're so perfect in every way. It was much more in the day we said, you're you as screwed up as I am, maybe even more so. <laughs> and uh, uh, yet I still don't want to go. And, or you still, st- it's really, it's it's, re- it's it's not so much an experience of making some sort of resolve oneself as experiencing it from the other person. You know, I, I felt like I was continuing to uh, justify and kind of maybe bully a little bit with, um sometimes even using pious uh, phrases and she she was patient with me enough to um to really make a fool out of myself but then watch as she stuck around and that that experience of another person is a uh it's it's grace incarnate is what it really is but it was um I'm a grateful man that she didn't um bail in the midst of my uh, and continued failures to uh, treat her with the charity she, um, that uh, I think she uh,
0: she should be treated with. You don't just run an organization called Mockingbird and write into the stuff. You, you also work at a church. Do you tell stories like that about your marriage in the church, like at retreats or when you're teaching Sunday school? I mean, do, do you share things like that?
1: Um, sometimes. I think if you get—there's um, there's like a way of being personal from the pulpit that— Uh, personal isn't always pastoral, right? I mean, yeah, personal isn't pastoral. So sometimes I'll tell stories about myself, but I'll obscure it because you know I I remember I'm having that experience. Scott, you know, we've talked about this before, I think, but like where you tell a story about yourself, and instead of people saying, "Oh, I recognize that," what they do is they say, "Are you okay?" You know, yeah, 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 yeah. When when you're leaving, when you're leaving, they're leaving the church. You're like, I'm kind of worried about you when you said that stuff about your marriage. Um. Instead Do you think of saying, that's often
0: a distraction? Like, because uh, oftentimes I think when people, sometimes, or, or, yeah, I think oftentimes when people are obsessed with somebody else's pain or something, it's it's about their own anxiety about the person. It's not like being patient with the pain or something, right? Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think totally. I think it's um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of ways we we use their pain to make us feel better about our own or something, or we uh, it's a way of like kind of. Not dealing with what they're actually trying to say is by trying to kind of like you know uh, deconstruct them as a person. I think I I I know that if when I've been vulnerable on podcasts and um, you know in writing, it's usually uh, not that premeditated. It's usually I felt like it it was kind of I can't not do this. Um, but you know, honestly, my editor on the book, Tony Jones, who I just you know adore, he would push me sometimes. He'd be like, "You've got to be a little more personal. People want to hear stories, not just about Axl Rose. They want to hear stories about you and where this touches down." And it, it's definitely not my first instinct to to write in the the I voice, but I find that. After having done you know, this website writing for twelve years, you just see what connects with people, and a lot of times it's very personal stuff. And so, um, yeah, I risk a bit more in the
0: book than I than I usually do. You're a middle child, right? Affirmative. Affirmative. Well, I mean, wait wait, you do have a younger brother, right? Unless she's an older one. I mean, I've heard about a younger brother.
1: I think I vaguely recall one of them there being a smaller child in our house when I was growing up. But I, I think, you know, if uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's like a, a shadow, almost. Yeah, he, you qualify, though, as a middle child. He was
0: enough that you could identify yourself in the birth order.
1: I think that's perfect way of saying it. There was enough of a younger sibling that I qualify as a middle child, but nothing more than that. Do you think that, how much of, do you think? I, lo- I, lo- I love you, Simeon. I love you, Simeon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I call Simeon, for those of you who don't know that I know David pretty well, I call him the great Zol, the great one. I love that guy. I, I should, I, too. Do, do, I wonder how much of birth order stuff, I mean, we could over-psychologize that, but I mean, I wonder how much of your self-effacing style is like just family, like, do you do you find as a middle child, that's a, that you kind of, is there any connection to that, like being caught in the middle and, or just now?
1: Um, maybe, you know, I had very strong, my brother, older brother's a very strong personality. I mean, he's wonderful, but he's, uh, he kind of cut a wide path. And I felt more like pressure to kind of be the... A lot of times they say, like, the first child is the kind of the golden child or the the one that behaves. And that wasn't really the case in our family. I was the one who got the gold stars because he was sort of... He was definitely... And John wouldn't mind me saying this. He was definitely... If he'd been brought up today, he would have been uh, diagnosed with some sort of ADHD or ADD or something like that. So he was kind of a handful. Um, Wonderful, creative, extremely bright, but... Uh, when people talk about birth order stuff and they always talk about the middle child being sort of complicated or really insecure, I mean, I am insecure. There's no question about it. And releasing a book out into the world presses on a lot of those buttons. But um, not necessarily in the ways that some middle children are you know, I say that now, you know, maybe a psychologist might look at me and say it. The
0: what what buttons is push? Like, is your biggest fear, like the negative Amazon review or like the, the or something Christian and what is like, or some like the Atlanta or something like, what is the, the anxiety? Like, what would be the, the big thing that would be like, okay, I'm having this nightmare thing. Like we all have these dreams that we're, or maybe I just have them that you're taking a test and you don't know any of the answers or anything like that. Like what, what would be the thing that is that's, the biggest fear?
1: Isn't that the, that's the question, Scott. I mean, it's, it's. You know, I'm drawn to write about a lot of grace and law stuff because it occupies my own headspace. And I probably the fear is that, you know, I'm, not, I'm personally not good enough. You know, that I'm a fraud or um, talking out of my rear end. That I'm not uh, nearly as uh, much of an authority as I try to present myself as. And I, I, I hope I don't actually try to present myself as much of an authority. But, uh, yeah, rejection lack of love uh criticism I, I i don't like criticism i mean who who does uh all of these things but you know it's it, it's pretty small potatoes in the midst of you know people living and dying but uh yeah there you have it i'm out there people can uh you know in in the way that the the world interacts with ideas and and books like this, you kind of get co opted into a culture war thing, or you can get dismissed. You can become vilified. You know, um, people can accuse you of things. I mean, that's all that stuff's scary to me.
0: Rob Bell said when he wrote love wins he got on the cover of time magazine and he, he said that it's iconic you grew up in a certain ch- and probably similar age to you and i like you grew up, time magazine used to be a big deal right like he's like i was on the cover of time magazine you know i i walked in the grocery store and yeah. saw myself and he's like you know what happens next week at the, at the grocery store they put someone else on the cover <laughs> right like Even if you hit it, right? It's like the transfiguration story in the Bible, right? Even if you hit it, you want to build the tent. You can't. You can never hold. It's like a slipper. You can never hold on to it, right?
1: I know. In in six months' time, I won't be thinking about this. It'll all seem like a bit of a... Dream. I mean, I've uh, we've released enough projects and done enough conferences with Mockingbird that things that I thought were so important and so, um, you know, monumental and such referendums on my worth or value of the person ended up not being important almost at all, or in, they ended up being important in ways I didn't realize. And uh, but here I am. I, I can't internalize that. I can't I can't metabolize that uh, that lesson for myself in the heat
0: of the moment.
1: So pray for me, Scott, my friend.
0: Well, if I were better at prayer, I would do that. But nobody I ever pray for gets better. So I feel like if they, if you ask me to pray for you, it's like I, I feel like it's it's better if I don't pray for you. Okay, then don't. You know, I yeah. I, I, I trust you on that one. You in. So one of the best chapters in the book is on technology. And you talk about, you know, how we're more, wi- we're so wired and it it, it, it you know, ties into our workaholism and, 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 and yet there's this sort of also kind of thing where if we just unplug, you even unplugged for a while. I remember when you got like a, a dumb phone, it, it was so frustrating I mean, you had a dumb <laughs> phone, but, but, you know, you, you kind of are like, well, Hey, maybe this distraction if we stop self-justifying, you quote Ted Peters, a Lutheran theologian, if we just stop self-justifying, we can see the world more for what it is. And, and, and you say that, this is like paragraphs I wish I would have written. You say, who knows, to the extent that distraction is killing us and we are too distracted to notice, it may be bringing us into contact with the divine in a way that no amount of carefully chosen, quietly con- contemplated words can. Because the God who dwells in silence does not exist in of the independent of the noise, nor is he waiting for you and me to calm our own storms. Miraculous as it may sound, I've heard he even has a predilection for hopeless rationalizers and their hypocritical friends. I read it online, so it has to be true. <laughs> Pretty clever. It, Pretty clever, that guy. Yeah. Is it fair to say that... like So on, on one level, right, you could look at this book as a sort of uh, critique of any attempt to, to sort of live on a spiritual path or something like, cause it will be, but in some sense there's a thread of death and resurrection and everything. Like it's almost like you have to crucify romance so that it can rise again, or you have to crucify technology so that you can, it can, ri- it, it can rise again in a sense of e- e- when, e- then it can be, I mean, C.S. Lewis says, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you only aim at earth, you lose both. So is it on some level, like when you crucify these things, you see them for all of their self-justifying, self-justifying tools that they are. You can actually have the something good about them when you realize the way we do self-medicate and use them and stuff like that. There's almost like this is not a sort of uh, this is not the Benedict option or something like that. This is not an, a world negating book. It's a pretty world affirming book. It's just the world shouldn't be our religion.
1: Well, wow. I mean, I wish I'd put it in those exact words. I think it's, that's exactly right. I mean, there is very. Second
0: edition, second edition. Sec- <laughs>
1: Seculosity, Mach 2. Um, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. I, I believe that, you know, you, death and resurrection, uh, a lot of these um, areas of our life that I'm talking about end up producing that. They end up generating something like that. And that's why I feel like there's ultimately something hopeful, not in sort of reappropriating these things in a Christian way or some sort of healthier way, but in allowing these things to be done unto you. And, uh, you know, God happens to a person, and that's oftentimes is an assault on the way that we are self-justifying. And uh, the fruit uh, that comes after your attempts to, um, you know, eat perfectly or you know, vote, uh, you know, for the absolute uh, utopian candidate. I mean, it's um, these things, uh, yeah, on the other side of that, there's enormous amounts of life. And it's not like it's just a one-time thing. It, it happens all the time. Yet we have this, we we fall victim or prey to this illusion. I mean, you could call it a lie, but that if we just uh, do enough we will be enough and that um, instead uh, in recognition that we won't and that none of these things are actually, they're actually just making us more anxious, more tired, more lonely Um, in that vulnerability and that weakness and pain. Like that's where God is found. That's where resurrection happens. That's where the, the, the hand, the the grip is loosened a little bit and some life gets in and, and you see all sorts of ways in which people re approach, um, the, uh, seculosities, the objects of our seculosity in healthy, exciting, cool, creative, um, funny, uh, humanizing ways. I think right now the predominant spirit is not that, but I don't think I'm full of hope about it. And almost, you you almost get full of hope. As I said, the more that the screws get turned, the more likely, um, the, Act of surrender is to occur. You know, it's um, you can only take so much as a human being. The, the pace of life can only get so fast before the wheels just simply fall off. And uh, yeah, that's. I think there's there's hope there. So if I were if I didn't have a real belief in God, I don't know. I'd probably have a more nihilistic view because it would just be like the wheels fall off and then the, then you're it's over. You know, life is sort of done. But I what I see is that. Life kind of begins there. And not just life, God, you know, rebirth, regeneration, hope, hope, love, all those things.
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five minutes? a month or more. It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera. Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Lewis Smeads, who is a pretty, he's a blessed memory now, but he's a prominent Christian psychologist, taught at Fuller for a while, Fuller Seminary he said he he would always say he was married numerous times to the same woman and that the key was death and resurrection like we had one marriage where we were newlyweds and then kids and then you know adolescents and then empty nesters and retirement like that and you know each to keep the marriage alive is death and resurrection there was and you know there's no resurrection without death like you have to and 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 it seems like a lot of the, the sort of massive divorce culture some of it is like seems like people can't Resur- can't like bury something. Like, they they fixate on well. We had to keep this or keep that. I mean, that seems to be a thread in your book around it, it, like because this is not saying don't parent, don't uh enjoy the joys of work, don't you know, don't be, don't be Amish. But it, it's like hey, you're gonna have this relationship with the world that it's gonna have to be held loosely, right? Like it it, it it loosely or it's gonna hold you. It's gonna choke you.
1: Wow. Again, I wish I had written said it in those exact words because that's what I that's what I think. I really did not set out to write a book that was anti uh, you know material you know that was was, was sort of a you know escapist book or some kind of uh, alarmist manifesto. It really is like there is so much good in a lot of these things, and in fact, every chapter I feel like I have to uh, have some lengthy qualifier. In saying parenting is good, children is good, politics is good, like or necessary. Uh we have
0: know. the best politics right now. <laughs> the best. It's the best. The,
1: romance is great. There's nothing better. Uh but when these things become uh arbiters of salvation, uh they they they're they're poisoned, you know? And um that doesn't mean that they're irredeemably poisoned. It just means that that's what I see when I look around. I see, I see um, a bunch of people who think that they've escaped uh, religion or something like that. I see, I see us uh, sort of all ensconced in oppressive structures that are making us miserable because there's so much self-justification and rationalization going on that's not really being acknowledged. And those are a lot of the same forces... Um, that, uh, you know, they preclude grace, they preclude life. And, um, yeah, I recognize it. I recognize it. And it makes me sad because I've also suffer it myself.
0: You have this great chapter, like called what to do about it in the end, the conclusion, which is as a guy that has spent his life combating a kind of performanceism, you know, like, well then, I mean, the, the editors got to say, what, what's your, you got to have a hot take. You got to have a to do. But I mean, you say that it's so well, right? You say crafting a religion of grace from scratch may be better than nothing. But it's ultimately a self-defeating enterprise. For love and mercy to penetrate our hearts, they must be true, or at least perceived as such. A religion of grace must be received rather than constructive. The gifts we give ourselves don't hold a candle to the ones that truly come from an outside party, especially the ones that come by surprise. This is why the historical element of Christianity, that Jesus lived and died and rose again, isn't arbitrary but essential. Without the visceral yet well-attested event of Christ's passion, the announcement that we have been justified through faith, we have peace through our, our uh, with God through our Lord's Christ would not find the same traction in human affairs and certainly not two millennia later. I, I mean that is so incredibly well written and I again it's on the paragraphs I wish I would have written list. But you work in a church, you run a religious organization. I mean, is this the Sturm and drawing? I mean, because you you on you know you that's how you feed your kids right and, and religiosity right on some level like right. I, I mean, is this how do you live with that? Like, cause you live in an, and you're in an Episcopal church. You, you, you founded, you know, you're kind of, even though you, you run this mavericky kind of Christian organization, but it's, it becomes an institution. It has boards. It has things, you know, like the 501c3. I mean, this is the tension, right? Totally. Totally. I mean, yeah, if kids need to be fed, move,
1: you know, uh, I don't really know how to, how to answer that. Like it's, um, there's a fundamental sort of hypocrisy, I'm sure at work. Um, I guess you could say you're just doing the best you can to try to make, trying to keep things from ossifying, um, to, um, yeah, to, 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 you know, living with the knowledge that, uh, grace and, um, religious institutions are always sort of at odds with each other. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think like, how do I, it's hard to get into that question without trying to justify oneself, except for to say that I, I just feel like this is where, where God has put me. And, um, there's been a lot of um, kicking and screaming along the way, and uh, there probably will be a lot more. But it seems to be, you know, still viable for me as a human being, and I, I still find uh, hope. And it's, it's not squashed under the weight of institutional, you know, inertia or whatever you have.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, on some level, if you're not a hypocrite, do you just have like no standards or something? Really, I mean, like, like it, it, hypocrisy is a product of, like, when we pursue the good life and realize it's unattainable or or attainable only in in very proximate and penultimate measures, right? Like, this is, any serious student of life winds up in hypocrisy.
1: Totally. I think there's, like, that the freedom of the gospel, in a sense, is the freedom not to have to kind of minimize that dissonance all the time, but to sort of accept it as, you know, this is just how it's going to be until kingdom come. You know, it's... Uh, bearing in mind that I, I do work at a fairly eccentric church with a kind of culture of grace that doesn't really, um, it's not very indicative of a lot of ecclesial structures. Uh, so I do get more of a taste of it. I feel like I have to compromise a little less than I might otherwise have to. Um, but yeah, it's still there, Scott. And I, I think you're right. I think to be a student of life is to sort of accept uh, your hypocrisy or at least to to
0: have it accepted for you in some some fundamental way and you live and work in charlottesville virginia which is an interesting town and it's gotten a lot of notoriety because of tiki torches and polo show i didn't know that the new white nationalist thing is uh like chinos in this white shirt it's very you know dockers but (laughs) you i mean you've written about this right i mean it's interesting because it's this it's it seems like a tinderbox because it's this kind of bastion of the cosmopolitan blue state culture in the midst of virginia you know a part of virginia that's not near dc and so it's it, it, all of the sort of culture wars that we have in, in a big diverse culture right with lots of different stories and things like this it seems like that's a tinderbox right like and and, and you've lived through all this stuff right you your church had like uh, you were cleaning up trash on sunday morning from the protests.
1: that's true yeah, it's been surreal. You know, Charlottesville, like when we first moved here, it was, everyone told us it was, you know, always voted the, you know, one of the best places to live in America. And I think the, the Guardian reported a couple of years ago, that it was the, the, the happiest place on earth, um, which I joke, I, I think it's um, really just one of the places where people are most likely to fill out, you know, questionnaires about how much they like living here. But it's the uh yeah that that was that was
0: that's but that isn't that it though that's some of what you're talking about right like it's this you fill out the questionnaire but we live in charlottesville like it's some of this sort of and even if it's not all it's cracked up to be we don't want to lose our spot on the list
1: oh god no god no and there's a lot of that here there's a lot of everything here i mean charlottesville isn't really it, it is a nice place to live i don't want to knock it too much but yeah that was um that was a dark period. I mean, it was like, uh, people coming here because of what it represented, you know? Uh, and I've watched as I've been, been here, you know, it, it's getting, it gets, um, to those, to the, the people who marched, you know, and, um, Richard Spencer and those folks, I mean, it, it represented sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, head in the sand elitist, uh, blue state stuff. And then, uh, to Rolling Stone reporters, it, it represents the height of, um, privileged kind of old boy th- networks. And it, it, for some reason, this town, while we've been here, I don't think a year has gone by where there hasn't been some major news story. And, um, I mean, nothing as major as August 12th, 2017, but, um, it kind of is a good place to be for someone who's interested in like looking at the culture and taking the pulse. Um, it's also, you know, uh, a little scary. Sometimes you wish you had a little more removed from those things, but, um, yeah, Charlottesville. It's it is a beautiful place. There is a lot to wonderful things to do. But uh people here are just as, you know, unhappy and in pain and, you know, struggling to figure it all out as anywhere, I find. That depends. I mean, that doesn't matter
0: how much money they have or uh what their political bent is. You have a great chapter in the in the book on food, and you've admitted your foodie. I you know, I think it's in Mere Christianity C.S. Lewis talks about, and he's trying to make an absurd point about strip clubs. And he says, oh my God, like imagine, you know, 50 years in the future, we saw people showing up at, at some, you know, cabaret scenario, And there was a, a curtain, so of lifted up and there was a roast turkey <laughs> with potatoes and no beautifully roasted with yams and no one wanted to eat it. Just look at it. And it sounded so stupid. And he's like, that's what our, our hypersexuality is. But that's what we have, right? I mean, like we have HGTV, uh, you know, the Food Network and all this stuff. And and you you are quoting someone, uh, William... Dereswitz. Uh, Darris, yep. Yeah, he says, food now expresses the symbolic values and absorbs the spiritual energies of the educated class. It's become the meaning of life, a path to salvation for the self and humanity, both. I mean, this is the... It's fascinating, right? That Like, this is like... Uh, Lewis, I mean, is trying to make an absurd analogy. Now it's where we live.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, that's not the only thing. I think he does the same thing. He did the same thing about partisan politics, I believe. Um, he... he- it's funny, Lewis is sort of being rehabilitated again right now. It feels like <laughs> after sort of the, the sort of 90s evangelicalism went overboard with their Lewis worship, and then for the last 15 years, everyone's been like, oh, just anything but something by C.S. Lewis. And now it's like, wait a second, he he's actually still does have a lot to say. Did you re- see, by the way, that Francis Bufford has written a...
0: Um, a bootleg Narnia a book. bootleg Narnia
1: book? I am dying to get my hands on that sucker.
0: Dude, on the Unorthodox podcast, Mark Oppenheimer, friend of the show, Friend of uh, Mockingbird, too, said uh, he was interviewing Al Mueller and he said, Al, like, if any Jews were interested in converting to evangelical Christianity, uh, what would you have them read just for process? Hey, it says John Stott, basic Christianity. He said, Thank you for not say- uh, saying C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. He's like, If another evangelical pulls me aside after a talk and says, If you just read C.S. Lewis, you'd become a Christian, I will shoot them and myself. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know.
1: Remember, my my dad used to have similar lines like that. He'd be like, "Oh, you know, please, someone at least quote Auden to me. Quote uh, quote uh, T. S. Eliot if you want to go the sort of you know High Church Englishman way. Just there, there are other options at this point. But anyway, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not to, not to disparage
1: uh, disparage uh, Clive. Lot of wonderful things to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, but that that it, it's interesting because you 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 talk about what he does with partisan politics, and and you have a chapter in the book on politics. And my sense is this is where, I mean, Mockingbird occupies a pretty interesting place on the Christian cultural landscape in that it gets shot at from all sides, right? Like from certain conservatives, you're sort of, well, you guys believe in the Bible and even believe Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, you know, you're not in the culture war. And from liberals, you're like, you guys are always for the least last and lost. And, but you don't talk, but you critique intersectionality. And I mean, is that? and you talk about, you don't like criticism and it seems it's, it's the irony is like you've built an organization where that's all you get very much. <laughs> like, like, is that tough? I mean, personally for you? Sure.
1: Yeah. It's very tough. I, I think it's like it, how, you know, one asks, there have definitely times. when it's been like, do I really want to keep you know, going? Cause it, it, you get shot at so much. Um, and you know, some of it's minor that feels major, and some of it's less than. Some of it's real. Um, yeah, man. I I don't know what to say except for that it it's um, it keeps me connected to God. I think that it's uh, keeps me on my knees. Um, and I also there's a slightly self important aspect here in that I don't think people are that many people are staying up at night thinking about Mockingbird. Um,
0: but I do. But hopefully, more after this book, more critics. Yeah,
1: I mean that the book is gonna. It, it could draw critics. That that politics chapter in particular could draw some critics. And um, yeah, you know, I I tried to thread the needle in a way that spoke comfort on you know, some some sort of universal level, as I understand it, and 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 as a way to to speak for myself and not completely for the organization to detach myself a little bit. At this point, as I almost hit forty um I mean I'm still hundred and twenty percent committed to what I'm doing uh with Mockingbird, but it's um yeah scott you know the 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 uh the um the criticism you get it, for me i I sometimes wonder i'm like i'm just not i'm not constituted for this it's like there's there are people out there like there are that seem to be Seem to be able to do it. I mean, clearly, our president can handle criticism. Uh, it's kind of uh, there. There's like Stern. You know, he can. He's fine with it. He
0: can't. He can't. Actually, it's funny because he lost it on his radio show because Wendy Williams. Yeah, shit on the way. He's like Howard's gone Hollywood. He looks like to to the. Cover. And he's like, I'm not Hollywood, but he went on this rant for an hour, and 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 Robin just okay, Howard, okay, but yeah. it's very interesting. But like, it's it's interesting because the reason he got into radio is because his dad never paid attention to him, and he was a radio engineer. And once a year, he would take him to see. He would record the cartoons, like some of the famous voiceovers for all. I mean, his dad was like a didn't make tons of money, but he was a successful radio engineer. He's like, if I could just get in that box, my dad would love me. <laughs> and then he said, you know, when his. He first got to New York. He said he was just groping, You're a moron. What? You couldn't be on the radio. You don't even. You could make a dollar. You should take acting classes. And then when he saw that he made it in New York, he said, "You're a genius." And yet, it's still not enough. I mean, for Howard Stern, like the guys, king, the king of all media in some ways, and it's not enough, right? I mean, you, it, it just.
1: Yeah, it, it never quiets those voices within. I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm lucky in that I do feel one of the ways that I can keep going is I feel like I've got. You know, the blessing of a father figure, my, my own father, uh, that is sort of unwavering in its uh, confidence and its support. And that's a huge gift to any son, any person. Um, yeah. But, you know, Scott, I feel like you deal with it, but he himself is terrible at dealing with criticism. <laughs> um I mean, I feel you're pretty good at it. I feel like, I mean, I, I, I look to you and think that you're able to kind of...
0: That's because like, I, I, like, I. I it, it reminds me of my growing up. I'm like, oh, gosh, if no one's, like, yelling at me, I don't, that you know, like, I kind of, like, <laughs> I would like it if I didn't handle criticism better. Uh, like, uh, I think there's... You bring up your dad. I think your dad is one of my favorite theologians. And it's funny because I, before I had ever heard of Mockingbird, I connected to your dad through somebody that was really a psychologist. I were named Frank Lake. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that your dad has, it seems like handed down to the spirit of mockingbird is this, is this thing. You have Christians that are really, and maybe this is mirrored in the secular culture too, but like, there's this tendency to really be modest about the human condition mm-hmm. right and take human failure seriously in our mixed bag or what religious people call original sin seriously and then usually those people who hate the world are not cultural sophisticates or not people that can drink in the best things of the world then you have people that are very worldly uh and yet are not honest about the dark side of the world the dark side of the human condition but your dad is one of these people that pulls no punches on our dark side and yet wakes up like a little kid about dinosaurs and crab movies and journey. And like, I mean, the, the, the ability to hold the tragic nature of the human condition and yet the beautiful theater of where Christ plays in a thousand places, that seems to be part of the lifeblood of Mockingbird and, and, and of secularity like in the midst of the secularity like there's a resounding thread of hope throughout the whole book. Well, gosh, then if that comes
1: through, then maybe it, it is- uh, it's been successful, you know, that's a, that is a, certainly what's in my heart, you know, um, that to hold both of these things, to not, you know, to set your expectations low when it comes to yourself and other people, and yet to be continually amazed and surprised and at the very many cool things that are happening all around us. Um, it's, you're right, it's very rare to have one, uh, but have both. Um, and I think that yeah, if if, if seculosity can provide maybe a, a nudge in that direction or a blueprint for people in that way, um, I feel it's a gift I've been given. You know that from from him that who somehow got it. I don't know how. Probably just from God. then uh, if that's a gift that can be given passed on, um, well then I'm very gratified.
0: You are, you know, you you run this organization and you work at a church, but you're not ordained right? You're not one of the people that wears priestly roast. How old is your oldest kid? Eight years old. Do they ask you what you do? Like, what does my dad do? Like when they're school, like my dad's an engineer, my dad's this. I mean, (laughs) what do they say that you do? I
1: think they say I work at a church. Like they know that I give sermons sometimes and they know that I have a book coming out, but they know they haven't really asked. It's coming. You know, my talk, I mean, what do my wife basically says, Oh, he's a writer or he runs a nonprofit. Um,
0: is that an angst-ridden thing, like Charlottesville cocktail parties, that you don't have a, like, I mean, this is, you know, it's funny because this whole thing, we just saw the scandal, right, where everybody's, like, paying for their kids, mm-hmm. you know, and one actress, like, her kid was an Instagram influencer, I'm just going to go to college to a party whatever. but, like, part of it said, well, my kid can't be at a cocktail party and say they didn't go to at least USC, right, like, it, 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 I mean, it, this is the weird world in which we live, right, and you have a, a hard job to explain, I mean, is that difficult like at cocktail parties or, or 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 soccer games and things like that.
1: Yes, it it definitely is. There's no question about it. And It's more difficult for other people than it is for me. Meaning, it's more difficult for my family members. Um, I'm a little bit more. I've sort of, in that sense, I've developed a slightly thicker skin just because all the men I know in my context are usually involved in about one of two fields, and none of them seem very interested in the, either of them. And so I feel... What are the two fields? Um, finance, and then occasionally some form of law. Uh, that's... I mean, I know a few doctors, but most of the... I, I, that's, it's going to sound uncharitable talking about this too, too, in too much detail, but um, I, people managing... Uh, yeah, just, just involved in the sort of moving and managing of... Money and betting on companies. I mean, that, that's sort of the world like, in which uh, like, I live. Like here. If, da
0: Vinci, if Da Vinci was born today, he'd be running a hedge fund. Like we would take that creative genius and say, you should really move money around with that creative. You could make an algorithm, right? Like, yeah, I had
1: this funny thing is like. The, the, I have a good friend who's an artist here in town and she's extremely gifted and just risen, risen to the top of her field quite quickly and she's sort of, her prices are high and she gets all these world class clientele and someone was saying, you know, she's she's really pulling one over on people. And I said to, I said, what are you, are you kidding me? She's super talented. Uh, the people who are pulling one over on people are just the ones clicking buttons and placing bets all day. Like that's, they're not actually producing anything. This person's producing beauty. I mean have we gotten that far away from I mean, like, I love these folks. I mean, what I'm doing is, I sometimes could be construed as a magic trick, too, you know. But it's, um, let's not um, delude ourselves into what's of value in the world. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a massive delusion about what's important in life that is hard not to get uh, resentful about or cynical about, and just start to hate the world. I mean, that Scott, that is the the real thing. It's not the criticism that gets to me necessarily. It's Um, how do you remain uh, dialed in to yourself and what's going around you without starting to kind of hate the world? Not because it's not conforming to Christianity or to some sort of God-given plan, but because people are so massively um, uh, deluded. And like that and, uh, maybe that, that sounds almost like a conspiracy theory, but like I find myself being emotionally affected by these things, you know, so sometimes I do go to cocktail parties and I know that this person just bought their third vacation home and I'm sitting here, you know, really trying to make it work to, you know, to own my home single. And, uh, you, there is a fair amount of sort of mental weightlifting that occurs, um, and yet, you sort of look at it as like, this person's not not talented, they're not, they're not smart, they just basically uh, had someone give them a chance to sit at a computer for, <laughs> you know, 40 hours a week, and that's the all that's going on here. And how do you not, occasionally not, when you see the amount of suffering and pain in the world, how do you not sort of just come to hate that part of life? Uh, so that's a struggle, and I think that the continually going to church and hearing the gospel, and hearing that I'm no better than that person, and
0: that person's no better than me, and that God- and all of us in, in hunter gatherer society, right, probably would have been like died at age six, right? Because like, yeah. we live in this weird age where like, for the infinitesimal life of evolutionary humanity, being able to like think abstract thought helps you. Like, most of the time, like, right, like, so it's just a weird thing where everybody thinks the self-made person, whatever. everything is grace, right? Just being born, you know. Everything, You're yeah. born, you, you won the lottery just being born, and the fact that you were born, and, you know, Pinker wrote that book, Enlightenment Now, whatever, like, like, basically, we live in the safest, healthiest culture. I mean, just even being born in this culture is grace, so it's like, don't, you know. You know it, totally. It,
1: it, yeah. I mean, I that's... Anyway, you've nailed a sort of interpersonal tension that I feel. And, uh, I mean, my, my wife's got a lot of fortitude in that respect. And I think there were times when it was harder for her to just be like, well, he's doing something unconventional. But at, at, at this point, the older I get, that just turns into, a.k.a. he's interesting, rather than he's exactly like this guy, this guy, you know, playing golf every Saturday and getting tickets to every game and whatever it is, the next thing. Uh, like,
0: if, you were, if you were four on the Enneagram, yeah, you would love this life.
1: <laughs> I don't, and I'm not a four on the enneagram. No, no. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it had the, but then that it, it creates in me a sort of self righteousness and a, a puffing up of myself. So it just—it's all part of the whole spiel of being connected to myself. So,
0: who would you most wish would read this book? Like, if you could have a fantasy of somebody that read this book, who would it be? Golly,
1: who? I mean, I write pretty much everything I write. I write it with. Uh, kind of non Christians in mind, you know, as as you know, as we've already talked about, and so at uh, people that are suffering and uh, under the gun of a huge amount of law and demand, and uh, no, but give me a, person, a person, give me like a. Well, okay, I think that uh, I mean, I think that David Brooks would be a wonderful person. I mean, but that's just me thinking about who could promote it. Who
0: would I actually
1: <laughs> want to? Who would I actually?
0: Who want- would? You, who would? If if you said if they said to you. I read this and it was so meaningful. Who would the face be in that? That would be like your biggest, like wildest dream.
1: I would love for like Russell Brand to read it, and uh, oh yeah, people that I really re- respect. I think he would like this book, actually. I I hope so. I mean, he's someone I really respect. David Chappelle, I f- think very highly of. Um, I'm trying to think, like uh, you know, Heather Haverle to- Heather Haverleski, people that I like care about their opinion and. Uh, you know, maybe that I'm trying to seek validation from. But it would, I think it would just be interesting to talk to them about these things.
0: You named two comedians. It's interesting. Jerry Seinfeld says, comedians want to be themselves. Actors want to be somebody else. <laughs> so it's funny you named two comedians. I mean, is some of your own creative juices like trying to be yourself? Uh, yeah, that could be.
1: Maybe c- comedians have become like the, you know, the the clergy of our age right now. And they're the ones trying to... I think, what is it Norm Macdonald said, you know, that that, that used to be that comedians were trying to appear funny, and now they're just trying to appear smart. And there's a huge difference between those two things, and he's trying to appear funny. Like, he's another person I would love to read the book, frankly. Norm Macdonald. I I love that man. Um, There's, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm not interested in being someone else right now in my life. Uh, I'm not hugely interested in being myself, though. I mean, it's... uh, I'm captivated by my interests and kind of carried forward in the you know sea of life by God's grace that I I find immense joy in. Um, But yeah, I think that there's some uh, truth tellers out there, like Mary Carr is someone I really respect, and I would like who's basically every word I think is really powerful. Um, I would love to know what she would you know would think of the book. Um, So yeah, these are those are some people
0: what's next for you and for mockingbird i mean like you're you know you're kind of in that midlife sort of thing like you're you're you know you've written a couple of books you've you know you've written thousands and thousands and thousands of words online and in print like and you got an organization that just turned 10 a couple of years ago like it's do you think about like what's next or is that another form of control
1: it's another form of control for sure uh uh do i still think about it absolutely um I get worried about, you know, how am I going to send my kids to college, that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, every time I've run out of gas or not seen where things are going, I really do look back and I see that God has presented some sort of open door that I didn't see or better than anything I would have predicted. So while I do have some plans, I have a, definitely have an idea for the next book um, that I think is a worthwhile idea and could be kind of exciting. Um In terms of Mockingbird, I feel like, uh, you know, we're just very much hitting our stride and our voice is like only becoming more necessary in a sort of a polarized world. It's hard to hold it all together. But um, yeah, I mean, I've I've, like, I got like little little projects that I'm thinking about. I want to redesign our website. I really, I'm getting really happy with our, so you know, like some of our podcasts and um, I'm excited about, we're going to put out another devotional that I'm pumped about. I love our conferences. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm also doing a podcast about music, finally, just something with a friend of mine here in town that is, I needed to do something that was outside of Mockingbird and outside of um, just having any kind of, um, uh, you know, religious context. I just wanted to do something where I could just purely...
0: Yeah, because you can you can repeat the sins of... You write about career and the worshiping the altar of career, right? And you think, well, you know, I've not only am I in a religious institution, I didn't get ordained, I'm kind of a maverick, and I'm, I'm trying to give a non-toxic religion that helps people get a break from everything, but that can be its own kind of careerism, right? You can, you, you can work yourself to death trying to help people not work themselves to death.
1: Yeah, and that's my... Uh, it's one of my many pathologies, Scott. I mean, I'm a... I write about workaholism in there because I am a workaholic, you know, and I write about uh, foodieism because I am a foodie. I'm not writing about these things from a sort of clinical distance. And um I think hopefully that'll add that adds weight and power and some humility to the book rather it's not like a standing over the world. Um but yeah, you're right. It can totally become a careerism. I you know, I think it would be really fun. You know, I, I think about writing scripts, I think about, you know, Movies type things that I I feel like people are really dialed into that kind of thing. I'm open to all sorts of things, um, but I'm also committed to what I'm doing right now. So, uh, you know, what my my friend R.J. Heyman said, like, he said, you know, given how things have gone thus far, it's safe to continue. (laughs) And that sometimes has been a little bit of a motto for me, like given how things have gone thus far, God has not left the building um, it might it's safe to continue moving forward. And maybe it's never safe to continue moving forward. Maybe that's that's a, uh, a lie I'm telling myself to sleep at night. But I also think that might also be the voice of faith that is sort of struggling for a hearing in, internally.
0: Well, I mean, it's struggling for a hearing, but if it doesn't get a hearing, as your book points out, it, it, it gets the hearing in career or food or parenting or romance. So, like, I mean, maybe the best place for it is in God, right? And that's kind of the thesis of the book. It is the thesis of the book.
1: I mean, our hope really is not in a new reconceived theology. It's our hope is in God. I mean, and a uh, living God, a uh, merciful God. Um and uh my life is a witness to that in a lot of ways. Despite the careerism, despite the, you know, soulmate myth, despite all these things. That's grace, right?
0: Yeah, it is. And and the book is, is is a product of it. Seculosity, how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our religion and what to do about it. David, it's a great book. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for taking some time to talk with me about it and your, and about your life.
1: God, thank you, man. It's always wonderful to speak with you. I hope I, <laughs> I feel like I've <laughs> almost just been in a therapy session. I hope that's it, that, that uh, I don't... Uh... Yeah, anyway, I, I'm, I'm grateful for your candor and for your
0: openness. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Dave for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Seculosity. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.